Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors. Brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing. We have a great episode ahead, so let's launch right into it. Phil, let me go to you first. Great. Thanks, John. So I thought today I would talk about something uh, that I like to use on an almost daily basis, and particularly when it comes to making hard decisions, and it's a concept called counterfactual thinking which is probably something a lot of you have heard or familiar with. It's a reasonably well-known topic or issue in in psychology, but I think a lot of people dismiss it pretty quickly as, you know, the kind of psychobabble you'd hear in the self-help section of an airport bookstore or something like that. And I get it. It's a very, um, it's a very unnatural thing to do. I think at a lot of levels, I mean, you're basically playing a what if game. And so, for a lot of people, I, I totally get it. It's unnatural for me too to, to sit there and think about what would have happened if the facts that happened in, in real life actually didn't occur. What, you know, what would a reality look like if counter to the facts, something else had happened? So it's, it's obviously difficult and uncomfortable for a lot of people to sit there and say, you know, what if the ball had bounced out instead of in? You know, what if the head had come up tails and the coin had come up heads instead of tails? You know, I think it, forces you to acknowledge how much randomness there is in life and how differently things could have been, but for one break that went your way, essentially one piece of good luck instead of bad luck. Um, and so in the in the area of in, investing in particular, I think it's a fascinating exercise. I think the, the risk can be that it can almost paralyze you into never doing anything and not taking the intelligent risks that are out there because, you know, I think one of the main lessons is we never know what's going to happen. We can never predict with 100% certainty what's around the what's around the bend. And so, of course, you have to get lucky. I think the lesson there is just that you wait to... The odds are stacked so in your favor that you, you can live with it if things play out counter to how you'd hope them to play out. But, you know, you, you always have to get lucky. And the reason this, this came to the front of my mind this week, um, I guess it was several days ago now, but um, when Airbnb came public, which we all, I think we talked briefly about last week or a couple of weeks ago. The CEO there actually struck me as a very uh, intellectually aware or at least intellectually honest guy on this topic. I mean, because the the company priced the IPO, you know, well above the previous range that it had been targeting, then even I think at the high end of that range and then upsized the, the offering a little bit. And then of course, as soon as the shares started trading, they immediately doubled or more than doubled, I think in that first little bit of trading and and they kind of caught him on TV and they told him the first trade had happened at at whatever the price was. I don't even remember the number. It was so gigantic. You know, it was tens and tens of billions of dollars more than he had ever anticipated. Um, And he was stunned. I mean, he was absolutely slack jawed and stunned right there on TV. And, and, and you could tell he'd, he'd given interviews previously where he had kind of said that he was, amazed, stunned, whipsawed by the whole thing because back in April, back in March and April of just of this year, you know, not even nine full months ago, the company was laying people off. 
it took on, frankly, some distressed, almost rescue financing. You know, there was still equity value on paper there in that financing, but it wasn't much. It certainly wouldn't have been, you know, a successful IPO. It wouldn't even been an IPO candidate at that point. And so I think he, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but it was the, the best example I could find that was at least current, where I think he was at least acknowledging that history could have played out very differently for his company because with another few months like we had in March and April, Airbnb simply wouldn't have existed. And instead, you know, of course, things played out differently. People started renting homes close to their existing home so that they could get away a little bit instead of, you know, taking longer trips or longer vacations. And it actually ended up being a very good thing for Airbnb, at least in the short run. Of course, we'll see how it plays out years from now. The point being that the company was walking the, the knife's edge and managed to, you know, salvage a great victory from what looked like an imminent disaster or at least a defeat. And so I guess if I were looking at this as an investor, which I'm not, I mean, I'm not considering buying Airbnb at this point, but um, it would just give me pause to think that, you know, we were that close to to disaster nine months ago. And, and it was really through, you know, the benevolence of the capital markets that the company was salvaged from being worth basically zero. And now under slightly different circumstances, of course, the company's worth tens and tens of billions of dollars. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think on the flip side, it, it helps to think about things that have gone wrong that are the, that are not the company's fault. I mean, I think at least in investments that I'm aware of in the last 15 years, let's call it, um, I think one of the best I've ever seen was the common stock of GGP when it filed for bankruptcy in the in the financial crisis. And there again, all you had to ask yourself was, you know, what would this company look like? What would it be worth if it hadn't filed for bankruptcy? And there again, the only reason it had to file bankruptcy was because it was literally a matter of days where the market, the credit markets were basically just frozen. And had the Fed acted, you know, let's say a few days or a few weeks earlier, chances are the company would have been able to line up some financing. It would have been able to roll its short-term obligations and it would have avoided bankruptcy, which would have made the company at least optically look very, very different because we all know what happens when you go into bankruptcy. But in this case, it was really just a matter of a short-term illiquidity problem, not a long-term asset value problem. And any idiot could see that there was a ton of value in that capital structure, even all the way down to the equity. And so it was really just an issue of circumstances and, and the way that the ball had bounced on a very short-term basis. And if you could think through it on a counterfactual basis and say, well, what if this company hadn't filed bankruptcy? It would just become immediately, uh, immediately obvious. I mean, you need to do five minutes of work to figure that out. Um, so those are the kinds of things that I really like to go looking for. Again, I'm well aware that this idea of counterfactual thinking one sounds kind of goofy and two is very uncomfortable and that the main risk from doing it or one of the main risks from doing it is that you can really talk yourself into a state of paralysis where you just sit there and start contemplating, you know, the meaning of life and say, you know, well, if this, then that, and you just sort of spiral down this rabbit hole of indecision and, and analytical paralysis. And that's not the point of it either. I mean, just like everything else in investing, there's a, there's a paradox here that you have to manage. Um, so anyway, I thought I'd 
leave it at that and open it up to you guys and see what you think about the topic and see if you think of any other uh, examples where it was either really helpful in, in finding a good idea or really helpful in avoiding a mistake either recently or you know way back in the past. Yeah, I find the topic so interesting. I have a friend who is obsessed with the movie Sliding Doors, which is basically, yeah, you know, that's right. Yeah, it is a movie about the counterfactual, right? What if one door closed at a different time in your life? How different might your entire life have been? Um, is the premise. I've never actually seen the movie, but the idea like always fascinated me. And you know, one of my friends has has this like existential debate about his own life based on the movie, which I find kind of interesting. Um, but one of the ways that counterfactuals uh, w- with a different friend, um, really sharp market guy who after like the Fed actions in 08 was like, you know, this is the end of the financial world as we know it. Not the actuality of the crisis, but the Fed's actions. And, you know, it it left him not just paralyzed, but he like took all his money out of the market and was like, you know, I'm not, th- this is crazy. I, I can't stand for this. Um, and, you know, we would have this debate based around the counterfactual, like, you know, this was before I had kids, uh, late night sort of like debates, um, maybe, maybe uh, imbibing a little bit, um, <laughs> lubricating the conversation. But um, <laughs> the idea was like, what would the world look like had the Fed not acted? How do you know that the state of things today isn't actually a better state than, you know, had they not done anything? How do you know we might not have you know, how, how do you know the next great innovation might not have been precluded had the Fed not acted in the way they did? There's so many questions that you could ask and so many different angles you could take toward the debate. And I think it's a really helpful framing mechanism. Like, you know, obviously, I think it's really hard to say how different the world would look like, but you could start imagining certain things. And, you know, maybe maybe the world looks better in some person, someone's eyes than someone else's. But you know, to frame it in that way and to think of it in that way, I, I think is pretty helpful for a lot of people. Um, when you mentioned Brian Chesky, uh, the interview on um, on Bloomberg, where he's literally slack-jawed, that is such a perfect word for it. Like, you could imagine a different world where, you know, in some ways, uh, geez, so many different counterfactuals, but had COVID not hit, might Airbnb have been worse off in their IPO that was coming later this year anyway? You know, you know, certain things kind of accelerated sequences of events. Um, and yeah, you know, I, I think it's a really useful uh, framing mechanism and a really useful way to think about things. And I think it also like, to an extent, you know, anyone who's had um, good or bad luck in life could reflect on moments. Um, you, you could get really abstract with it, but on moments that, you know, had they happened or not happened uh, in in a slightly different way, how different everything could be for a person. And so, you know, life is fragile, life's precious, and we should be grateful for what we do have. And, you know, we should recognize that that there is this degree of luck to which, you know, very small uh, butterfly wing ripples could have dramatic effects elsewhere. So, you know, I, I, I think it's a really helpful framing uh, mechanism. Yeah, it's funny because... I've actually never seen sliding doors either, but uh, I've seen it come up a million times in references to things that I was reading. Maybe one of these days I'll have to watch it. But it is interesting how um, often counterfactual thinking is the basic premise for all sorts of things in arts and entertainment, movies, books, you know, narratives of all kind. I mean, kinds. I mean, the the girl who got away is a very you know common common theme, obviously. And that's why it struck me as so interesting that it just never really gets applied to business that much. I mean, I guess it does indirectly. I mean, we, we probably talk 
uh, more than we need to about Warren Buffett. But, you know, I think he, a lot of the ideas that he espouses, you know, he'll be the first to admit that he learned from other people. But I think he may have been actually um, original in coming up with his whole concept of the ovarian lottery, wherein, you know, he, you know, his jokes, you know, if he'd been born hundreds of years earlier, he would have been somebody's lunch because he's slow and unathletic or whatever. And, you know, in a very serious sense, you know, he says, if I hadn't been born male in the United States of America in 1930, whatever talents or abilities I have probably would have gone to waste. And, you know, that that's a great example of counterfactual thinking. I think about Jeff Bezos and, you know, probably his, you know, the, the single most successful businessman we could point to in that generation where, his whole life decision about starting Amazon, we wouldn't have Amazon today necessarily if he hadn't looked in the mirror in his late 20s or whatever it was and say, you know, I don't want to look back and have a counterfactual regret and think I let this whole opportunity pass me by and I didn't start a business. So he used, you know, the kind of a, a pre-planned counterfactual a regret minimization framework is how he coined the phrase, um, to, to decide I'm going to leave D.E. Shaw and go start Amazon. And, you know, I, I, I still think one of the more uh, impactful comments or quotes I've read in the last five or 10 years was Danny Kahneman, who's done so much great thinking and writing on all sorts of different topics that apply. But, you know, someone asked him, you know, if, if you had a magic wand and could get rid of one bias or flaw in, in human thinking, and human thought, what would it be? And he said, without hesitation, overconfidence. He thinks that we just make more mistakes and have more problems in life due to overconfidence than any other. And so I, you know, as an antidote to that, I can't think of anything that will reduce your overconfidence that will kind of, you know, pop your bubble and leave you at a lower, more rational level. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, if you're at least slightly, you know, you don't want to be manic depressive necessarily. You don't want to be fully depressed, but if you're at least a little depressed, you see the world more rationally for what it is. And I think that's how people have often described Danny Kahneman, particularly as you compare him to his longtime colleague, Amos Tversky. But, you know, this this whole idea that overconfidence can actually get you into trouble, you need just enough confidence, right? You, you have to be optimistic. You have to see the world as having hope and opportunity, but you can't be too confident. And I think, I think counterfactual thinking is, is probably the best way to, to fight that. John, what do you think? Yeah, it's definitely a really interesting topic. I think we're kind of we run into um, some difficulties uh, in implementing this is just that the real world is unlike a physics lab. So we cannot run controlled experiments. And right. we really don't know what might have been or, or might not have been uh, a lot of the time because we're just guessing. Uh, when it comes to counterfactuals. Um, I think what's interesting also to consider is I feel like they are most relevant when you have uh, the law of small numbers as opposed to large numbers. So let's say um, really interesting to think about what the world, how it might have looked differently if certain uh, dictators in the 20th century had not uh, existed. Uh, yeah. You know, people who plunged the world into war um, you know, would we have even had those wars or, you know, a counterfactual with the dinosaurs? What if the, you know, what if they hadn't had their extinction event? Uh, what would the world had looked like? So, but then when you talk about the law of large numbers, I feel like counterfactuals are less relevant. Like you get, you know, high frequency um 
some insurance events like um, auto accidents, you know, whether one happens or not, uh, doesn't matter for the insurance company, matters a lot for that person uh, involved in the accident. So how can we apply this to, you know, the investing world? Or, or I think one way is, let's say, when it comes to investing track records, if they're super long, um, counterfactuals probably matter less uh, than if you have someone with, you know, a two, three year track record who happens to have uh, just blown the lights off uh, or lights out um, there. You can say, well, if, you know, the Fed hadn't come in in March, maybe that person would have uh, blown up his fund instead of having a 500 percent return. But if, when you have someone like Buffett with a 50 plus year track record, probably less relevant because there you have more of a law of large numbers, although even there you can uh, wonder what might have happened if American Express or Geico had not uh, worked out. Um, One other thing with counterfactuals personally that I've kind of noticed, uh, maybe a character flaw, but sometimes uh, some of it can be wishful thinking. You know, we're basically, if I um, had a really big error of a mission where I was so close to investing in a company that became a 10-bagger, or if I sold out way too early, I kind of like to go back to that counterfactual and say, actually, I'm a such a good investor. That was just bad luck that I, you know, didn't pull the trigger or sold too early. You know, I don't really maybe do that kind of analysis as much when I did make money when I shouldn't have. So we also have to be a little bit honest with ourselves uh, when it comes to counterfactuals. And are we just looking at the ones where, you know, it makes us look better or not? Um, And then lastly, just a quick comment on Airbnb. You know, it's a business I like because the founder, as you said, Phil, uh, seems uh, very focused uh, and uh, just, you know, an honest guy in terms of communicating and running the business. And, you know, maybe there um, that saying what doesn't kill you makes you stronger uh, yeah. might apply. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see on that. Yeah, no, those are all those are all great points, and I think you raised some some excellent uh, points about this. I mean, the wishful thinking thing is is very legit. I think that's one of several big reasons why people shy away from this. One <clears throat> that I mentioned was just that it's unnatural. It's not really fun to think about what would have happened otherwise. But we all know people, and hopefully, I don't do this too much myself either. But it's certainly a, a problem. We all know people that are you know sitting around in their basement, lonely on Saturday night, just thinking, "Boy, if I had just taken that one risk, I'd be." world famous, mega rich, married to a supermodel, whatever, right? And it's garbage. It's total nonsense. I mean, they're literally just sitting there making mistakes for them or making excuses for themselves about the mistakes they made or the chances they didn't take. I mean, it truly is the resort of, you know, the losers out there that have just didn't have the courage to do something to resort to that sort of wishful thinking. So I totally agree. That's another trap. You you don't want to lead this you don't want to take this path and let you let it lead you to you know self pity or something where you you get all tied up in what could have been, um, and, and you're right. I mean, I think the small versus large sample size thing is a very legitimate issue. The only partial rejoinder I'd have to that is that even though we have a 50 year track record uh, for someone like Buffett, I think he would be the first to admit that just as you said, a few big ones made all the difference. You know, Geico and Amex and uh, on and on. But likewise, if a few bad ones hadn't been salvaged right when they were, we could have had a very different situation. I mean, Dempster Mill 
was a huge position back in his partnership. And it was really on death's doorstep. And if Harry Bottle didn't come in and save it, he could have very well had a very bad, you know, permanent problem that look, he would have been fine in the grand scheme of things. Don't get me wrong. I think that's where the duration of the track record really matters. But the path would have looked a whole lot different and been certainly a lot less pleasant for a long intervening stretch there. Or later in his career, if Solomon Brothers hadn't worked out the way that it did, if he wasn't able to convince the government at the 11th hour to not shut them down, um, you know, he'll be the first to admit there. He's on record saying that, you know, it was kind of the darkest moment of his career and he was really scrambling and felt like his back was up against the wall. And if Solomon had blown up in his face, Again, I think that would have had at least a, a significant impact on his legacy and his track record and all of that. Um, and, you know, it's funny, too, because you mentioned history. That's the other area I should have mentioned. You know, it's very common to see this narrative plot device in in the arts, but there are actually tons of historical um, novels, basically, where, you know, what if the Cuban Missile Crisis had played out differently? There's a famous book about that. Um, so it's... Again, I just find it really interesting that uh, it seems to be a really effective, thought-provoking technique or device in a lot of other areas, but I almost never see people think about it or do it explicitly in business. And I think it's worth adding to the toolkit for that. History is a really interesting example because like when John mentioned, uh, you know, sort of 1930s leaders or dictators, whatever, I can't remember the exact phrasing. I remember this um, like internet sensation from maybe it was five years ago or so um, asking the question, would you kill baby Hitler? And it's like, it's such an interesting question because I mean, the question itself presupposes that if you could, you know, remove Hitler at birth, um, then, you know, you would never end up with a lot of the evil that followed. But at the same time, it kind of neglects uh, the environment. Like was Hitler, you know, like just, uniquely powerful as a person who led to the future that followed? Or was it like an environment that set the stage for a certain kind of leader and a certain kind of point of view to emerge and, you know, set, step forward uh, in, in a very specific kind of way? That it wasn't the person, that it was the circumstances. And, I, you know, I think a lot of these questions are like, you know, do does the narrow or broader framing uh, is which one matters more. And, you know, I I feel like we do see it in business, but a lot of times it's cloaked as something a little different where people will write, you know, an after the fact analysis of something that happened and might ascribe the blame to a person where in fact, you know, whether or not that person acted in a certain way, the uh, events that would follow, um, you know, transpired anyway. I think that's a lot of what you see with like the financial crisis where certain people want to have like this person or that person blamed for the whole thing, but really it was an environmental happening. Like, and by environmental, I mean, like it was, you know, it was so much bigger than what one person or even one company did. It was, you know, systemic in nature, but people want to have like a very specific, kind of blame. And I think that's a, a kind of counterfactual in its own way. Um, and I see it happen in investing sometimes. I very recently saw a manager who's got a pretty concentrated book and a really uh, good track record. Um, but someone, I, I, I can't remember which manager it was, but someone's like, well, if you took out their single best investment, the rest of their results are mediocre. And I was like, okay, well, you know, <laughs> how could you say that? You know, this person's concentrated. Part of the process was, you know, trying to find opportunities for like incredible asymmetry, you know, they structured the rest of their book in such a way as to end up in one of these situations. 
sure, they might not have been right on any one thing, but like, you know, that's a really tough, interesting thing to say. And then, you know, you mentioned Buffett and it's like, well, what if Buffett never actually bought Berkshire? I mean, obviously he, he, he had a pretty phenomenal track record and he made phenomenal investments afterwards. But like the structure and platform that Berkshire gave created a certain kind of Lollapalooza that wouldn't have been possible without it. Meanwhile, like Berkshire itself was a pseudo accident. I mean, maybe not entirely an accident, but a pseudo accident. It might not have happened. Like how different would the world have, have been? Would would Buffett have been? So, yeah, I, I mean, maybe it does happen in business, but it just like has a different kind of narrative and looks a different way. It definitely looks different. I think it's just less explicit, right? I think it would be, it's somewhat related to the concept of doing a pre-mortem, which I think has taken on a little bit of momentum in the investing world in the last five or 10 years, which is, you know, kind of pre-thinking about what could go wrong and how counterfactuals could play out before they even do occur, which is, you know, kind of a different mind twist. But um, yeah, I mean, those, those are great points. And, you know, I, by no means should you, you know, overly punish people that have had one thing go their way because it could have played out differently or something. I mean, again, that just defeats the purpose. But I think, uh, you know, let's to use your example of the manager that was super concentrated in something that worked really well. I think that the difference is that, you know, if he's thinking correctly about the situation, he would just acknowledge that, you know, these were the odds and these were the cards that came up. And that's how it happened. Not, you know, oh, this was the only possible state of the universe where my brilliance was allowed to shine. And that is one area where I do think like at least in the last year or so, it seems awfully prevalent that, you know, we've had a lot of uh, bull market geniuses, so to speak, where everyone is confusing the results they're seeing in securities prices with a, you know, a true underlying deserved effect. So, but, you know, but that's, that's an evergreen statement. That's true almost all the time. So um, doesn't really doesn't really mean much. Right. Exactly. The Buffett quote, uh, no one knows who's swimming naked till the tide goes out comes to mind. I mean, that's definitely something that's been true time and again, right? Right. And he has talked to, to your point, he has talked about, you know, what it would have looked like if he never bought Berkshire. He's admitted that, you know, he sort of bought more stock as a as a spiteful response to the company when they tried to kind of take an eighth of a point from him in the buyback that they had agreed to. And, um, you know, what would it have looked like if he had just started de novo instead of taking on a failing textile manufacturer, or if he had bought some other business as his platform that was starting from a little bit different place, a better place, you know, who knows, right? It's fascinating. And I think one of the broader things, you know, one of the things that you recognize with Buffett, and I think you touched on it a little earlier as well, I mean, you know, you have to be humble. You have to understand that there's a lot that we don't control that ends up influencing us and acting on us and is somewhat deterministic and right or wrong or success versus failure. Um, And, you know, Buffett's had immense gratitude uh, because of that toward the world, society. I mean, you see it in in, uh, the giving pledge uh, at the end of the day. Um, so, you know, I mean, and if, and if you're not humble in markets, like the bull market genius, if you're not humble, the market's going to humble you eventually. So it's really something that's very important. Yep, exactly. Well, one, uh, idea that we're all very familiar in the financial world that I think relates very much to counterfactuals is survivorship bias, right? That's where, where basically counterfactuals did happen, but we just don't really 
focus on them or, or look at the those instances where it did happen. Uh, we just focus on the ones where it didn't. Um, you know, you also have kind of uh, that example of a kind of a cynical elimination of counterfactuals when mutual fund companies shut down underperforming funds and market the heck out of their outperforming funds. It's basically like saying, well, um, <laughs> the counterfactuals don't matter, just focus on uh, the ones that worked out. So definitely a, a, a great a topic, Phil, uh, to bring to our attention and kind of add to the toolkit uh, in business and investing. Elliot, let's go to you. You have a, a fascinating topic as well. Yeah, so I think it relates nicely with counterfactual thinking and it kind of works well in tandem. I want to talk about reflexivity. Um, I think George Soros is, uh, you know, one of the unique thinkers of our time, great trader, uh, obviously, but I don't think enough people in the value camp take him seriously. I don't think enough people have uh, read Soros, um, the alchemy of finance in particular. And, you know, I think his way of thinking is pretty damn valuable. So, you know, he's coined uh, coined um, his his uh, model, mental model reflexivity. Um, but, you know, another name for it might be positive feedback loops. And Soros has said as much. Um, so what are positive feedback loops? They're events that are uh, self-reinforcing, where things uh, move in one way and the very nature of them moving in that way keeps them moving farther in that direction. Um, and what happens is, you know, when you have negative feedback loops action, acting, then you have like equilibrium seeking and kind of like self uh, you, you have self-calibrating systems. But when you have positive feedback loops that are self-reinforcing, things get could get very detached from reality and things could move way beyond where they fundamentally should. And so, you know, I, I kind of use this phrasing to both suggest that, you know, it's incredibly relevant to markets, but it also happens outside of markets. You know, these things happen in kind of in, in chemistry, in, uh, you know, in life, you know, so it, it's a pretty, pretty diverse, uh, diversely applicable mental model. So, you know, as the positive feedback loops gets going, the farther things move from objective reality, the more unstable they become. Within Alchemy of Finance, Soros wrote this essay. Well, he published this essay that he had written uh, years before Alchemy of Finance called The Alchemy of REITs. And I think that's where he got the name from uh, for his book, inevitably. Alchemy of REITs was a really interesting tale of the REITs in the 1970s, where these things as a new vehicle started with a pretty rational basis, right? You invest in property, um, the income is passed through, the tax goes to the individual holder and you know these companies could pay out all their income but raise equity to invest in new properties and grow um, so you know what happened is it was a good idea some of these properties started getting more valuable the stock of these companies you know formerly had traded or in, in theory was supposed to trade somewhere around the book value or replacement value of their assets but companies recognized that you know when when things started working, these companies would trade for above book value. And at above book value, the market's saying, hey, go raise some equity and go buy something new. So they raise some equity, buy something new, things are growing more, uh, which sends the price even higher and get farther detached from book value. So you raise more equity, buy more stuff. But at some point, the music stops and you can't just keep going in the cycle. Um, you can't just keep raising equity to start paying your dividends, which you have to pay to keep investors involved. Um, you know, at some point you start raising equity to just pay dividends and then 
you know, you can't raise equity anymore. You got to cut your dividend and the whole thing collapses and the feedback loop actually goes the exact opposite direction that there's no equilibrium in the process. When a feed positive feedback loop breaks, it kicks off a positive feedback loop in the opposite direction. And I think what's interesting is the alchemy of REITs played out like to the T in the MLP space um, where you had this great like proliferation of uh, oil uh, of infrastructure to service um, the accelerating growth, uh, rising price of oil and accelerating demand uh, for drilling in the U.S. Um, and, you know, when it all broke uh, in like 2015, it was very much like this positive feedback loop in the op opposite direction. Um, so, you know, I think we're starting to see the very early stages of reflexivity in our markets here. Um, I guess one other example before I go down that route um, I do think in the dot-com bubble, what you really had was a lot of reflexivity. And one of the biggest ways it manifest was um, the kind of parallel telecom bubble, where there's so much hope for the internet that people invested in more capacity, which made prices go up, facilitated more fundraising to invest in yet more capacity. And you ended up with, you know, so much excess supply of telecom infrastructure that it would take, you know, 15, 20 years to actually use up some of that capacity. So, you know, what's happening now, I think, where you start seeing uh, for, for about, you know, I don't know, 15, 20 years, you actually had equity shrinkage, right? Between share repurchases, between M&A, you had a decreasing supply of public equities. And, you know, now what, what happened is prices rose. And when prices rise, that incentivizes new equity coming into markets. And you start having this wave of IPOs and IPOs themselves, like, you know, when you price fairly, okay, everything's good and well, but when you price extremely aggressively, you know, it's kind of telling people who are out there with assets, come to market fast, come to market fast. And that's when things get a little sloppy. That's when things could get a little hairy, where you kick off this cycle of reflexivity, um, where, you know, less and less good, less fundamentally sound assets come to market. And, you know, I think there are problems for companies when you come to market with, uh, you know, talk about counterfactual. Um, you know, what if Twitter years ago had come to market at a much more rational valuation and instead of like, you know, having this price where they can, you know, where it would be really, really hard to have fundamental events justify the valuation early on um, and kicking off this narrative of being, you know, a failure, so to speak. Um, you know, what would it look like? Well, you know, I think a lot of assets out there in the market today are, should be a little concerned about how, how, what the process to justifying today's uh, status is going to be like uh, when they come to market so hot. Um, but what's missing in terms of reflexivity today and why I think it is pretty different than 1999 is that you're not having like the actuality of coming to market lead to more demand and it's not translating into this self-reinforcing cycle with a seemingly higher demand uh, for end product justifying, um, you know, coming to market again as a company in, in different ways. There's some people who suggest that perhaps the easy fundraising environment for DTC com uh, companies is leading to more uh, demand for digital marketing than otherwise would be the case. But I, 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 maybe it's my gut, maybe I'm wrong on this, but I don't really think that has the same like reflexive nature to it all. I uh, just don't see, I, I think there's far more coming from, far more of the digital demand is changing channels of existing uh, ad spend than it is like just around the edges with this sort of demand. One area where I think like uh, reflexivity is almost the name of the game is Bitcoin. Um, in 2013, I wrote an essay called The Rise and Inevitable Fall of Bitcoin and cited 
Soros on reflexivity and how like the the structure of Bitcoin itself was geared toward reflexive cycles of you know euphoria and then despair and it's played out that way. I do think you know it's proven a degree of resiliency. So some of the volatility of it all could get sucked out, and you know maybe we're nearing a point where there's actual utility for it in a transact transactional way, and that would change everything, right? That would be a phase change in contrast to you know, a reflexive cycle. And that's what, what, what I think was needed, is needed to break out of that. But there is a bit of reflexivity in how uh, MicroStrategy, um, which, which we own some shares in, MicroStrategy is kind of creating some reflexivity. And I think it's a little, um, maybe early stages of concern in how it's playing out, where the company buys Bitcoin, the stock goes up a lot. They're able to you know, because the stock's gone up, raise a lot of money in a convert, which is effectively equity issuance at really cheap prices, to then buy more Bitcoin. And the very act of buying more Bitcoin in that scale drives prices higher, which drives MicroStrategy higher, which could incentivize another equity raise to do it again, rinse, wash, repeat. We'll see if it goes down that route. Or, I mean, even if it's not MicroStrategy, maybe another company comes out and is like, okay, maybe we'll do this. And, you know, it starts incentivizing this uh, kind of process of raise equity to buy Bitcoin, which drives Bitcoin up to raise more equity to buy Bitcoin, rinse, wash, repeat. That's how these kinds of cycles get started and it, and it gets a little crazy. And you do need a phase change to kind of get out of it. Um, so anyway, you know, reflexivity in markets fascinates me. I try to like find situations where it's taking place and just, you know, maybe observe, maybe put a little uh, at stake if I feel it's early and I understand and have a thesis behind it, and I could use some like true value anchor, um, like you know the revenue stream of a good uh, BI product. You know that's something, but um, you know I, I I really think it fascinates me intellectually. I think it does relate to counterfactual because you know when we talk about something like what happened in the financial crisis, there was a whole lot of reflexivity going on, and you could think about whether someone put the brakes or the skids at a certain point in a cycle because that could happen, right? There are um, you know, ways that you could throttle reflexivity if you identify it and you think it's harmful. Um, and, and, you know, actually, interestingly, I, I, I do think, you know, when we talk about uh, the waves of COVID, uh, the, the way a virus works is reflexive in that sense. Um, the virus ends up infecting so many people that it can't infect anyone else. And that's why you see instead of having this like gradual ascent on the other side of, of a wave going up, you have like a, a very parallel shape um, on the backside because it just can't, the, once a virus can't spread, it just can't spread. Um, so it's really interesting. And I think it's a, it, it's a mental model that's very important. And I think, uh, you know, value investors should look at it a little more. So I'll open it up to you guys. Yeah, what you, I was thinking about this the other day too, not only because it does re relate so closely to counterfactual thinking for sure, but uh, I think it was on, uh, Bill Brewster's podcast. I apologize. I don't remember who the the source was that they were discussing, but they mentioned someone who I think had put it out on their, uh, it was like pinned to their, their Twitter profile or something like that. And that it, it was this sentiment or this statement that price creates its own sentiment, which I think is a pretty good way of restating reflexivity. Don't you think that you know, yep, the that's price. Helene Meisler. That was Toby on uh, on Bill Brewster's podcast. I know okay. exactly the tweet you're talking about. Yeah, that sounds right. So anyway, that I think that was a pretty good way of reframing reflexivity, don't you? That you know, you don't need to 
worry about all this other stuff when price creates its own sentiment. And so I think that's exactly right in a lot of things. And I think you're seeing it. I agree, though, backing up a step that this is not anything like the treadmill of reflexivity that we were on in the late 90s. I don't think it's anything like the the reflexivity we saw in the, the financial crisis leading up to the things in the housing market there, because that was just crazy where you had the machine completely designed to feedback on itself, wherein, you know, these CDOs that were being issued just needed more RMBS to go in them. The RMBS issuers just needed more mortgages to feed them. And the evidence for the whole thing was, well, prices have always gone up and never declined nationally. Prices are going up right now and the market's doing fine. And it was just this giant feedback loop feeding on itself. And uh, we all know how that ended, of course. So I don't see anything even remotely like that today. I, I would say, though, that maybe the SPAC boom this year would have some hallmarks of that, whereby you know the, the success and the price action of certain SPACs is leading to more issuance of SPACs, which is creating more demand for SPACs, which is leading to more demand and, and issuance of SPACs, and on and on we go. And, and you know, look, that's, that's fine, but it's a relatively minor example of it compared to the other things that we, that we saw. And it doesn't really have to change the dynamic too much because I guess at the end of it, even though it's creating this massive stream of available fees in the asset management industry, you know, there's a pretty long list of companies that they could buy. I don't think it's realistic to project the end game being that there will be more companies created just to be SPAC bait. So I don't, you know, at some point it'll kind of burn itself out naturally and, and reach whatever level of SPAC activity is is normal and reasonable for the market without totally dire consequences like we had in the in the financial crisis and the housing boom. So uh, that part of it, it's to your point, I don't think it's anything like the prior environments we'd seen, even if there are some you know, valuations that might not make sense or something, which is just a different argument. But yeah, look, I, I it definitely goes back to um, what we were talking about earlier, where if, you know, if price can create its own sentiment, you know, how do you take advantage of that? And I think it's a tool for both clever CEOs and nefarious CEOs or, or fund managers or politicians to exploit because they know that once you get this thing spinning, it can really take off and, and go on its own. I mean, I think... Elon Musk has been a genius at doing this at Tesla. Um, I think other CEOs have tried to emulate that and been less successful, but but maybe polished it off. I mean, I, I, my personal preference would be to steer clear of leaders who seek to exploit reflexivity for their own means. I would rather see, um, you know, whether it's a business leader or a politician or, or anyone else sort of take the the road that they're going to do things the way they think they ought to be done and deserve the outcome they eventually get rather than to kind of use reflexivity as a, as a tool. And by the way, I don't think Soros or Druckenmiller or anybody else like that had ever exploited reflexivity to design something in advance to take advantage of. I think they used it as a tool to just sort of acknowledge what was happening around them and react to it, which I think is an important distinction. And that is certainly something that I could be better at. Um, I mean, even backing up a point to your your issue, I think a lot of people do undervalue um, the contributions of this line of thinking and the Soros and Druckenmiller, you know, Hall of Fame careers that they had. I think part of the reason, at least I undervalued it for a long time, was just because it's so much harder to do what they did. And it's just not, I mean, it's also not couched 
watched in this like aw shucks kind of grandpa. Anybody can do this shiny bow on top kind of thing. And so I, I kind of knew right away that I was probably never going to have anything like a career that that entailed the the way that those guys did it. So uh, just kind of kind of pushed me away from it for longer than it should have. But um, anyway, I, I totally agree. This is an amazing concept and tool that we should all be, you know, on the on the short list of things that you should be thinking about in, in your thought process of investing in markets. I mean, this is certainly in the top handful. Yeah, I think according to Soros, um, you know, reflexivity actually comes about because in, as investors, we're not just observers of companies or markets. We're also participants at the same time. And I think reflexivity starts taking hold actually when someone um, views something a little bit off, you know, kind of it, it, it builds this bias, which he calls a prevailing bias. Um, you could say, because if if nobody kind of had their judgment off, you could see right to the end of that reflexivity where it comes tumbling down and then it wouldn't even get started in the first place. You know, a lot of reflexivity is kind of like, well, it's going to be good for a while and we're going to make a ton of money before it breaks down, right? So that was kind of with, um, I think, the example of the REITs with equity leveraging or your classic kind of uh, M&A roll-up example where you're using inflated stock as currency. And what happens is it works great for those early investors in such a, a consolidator, but then that company has to start be acquiring bigger and bigger targets for it to actually continue. And at some point you get to the climax where there's no target that's big enough uh, to make this work. And then and then the thing collapses on itself. Um, other historical examples, uh, the credit cycle is a great example of this, you know, where lending, the act of lending actually increases the value of the collateral. And that creates that virtual uh, virtuous uh, circle or um, employee stock options. You know, as long as a stock is going up, that has that currency has value and you're able to attract the best uh, employees. If the stock starts going down, all of a sudden you are losing employees or unable to attract the best ones and that feeds on, it, on itself so the company can become worth less over time. And maybe that's where the example of Jack Dorsey at Twitter comes in where he actually took his own money essentially to try to break this uh, reflexivity relationship uh, that had developed. Um, one area where I have a lot of concerns and have thought about this uh, quite a bit is on the short side. Uh, and I'm not against short selling, but I am against promoting short selling of companies that have a large confidence component. So you think of banks where basically if you spread false rumors, you could actually produce a run on the bank and that could obviously make the short seller a ton of money, but it's economically destructive. Um, or with reinsurers, you know, it's also a reputational business. And if you remember back in the day when sh there was a short attack on Fairfax, it almost succeeded. You know, they were spreading rumors about Prem Watsa doing shady things and all kinds of stuff to shake the confidence because then you can actually create a self-fulfilling prophecy. 
um, due to the reflexive nature of these kinds of businesses. Um, and just a quick comment on the Fed. I think the Fed could view its role as basically in the business of breaking negative reflexive loops while not creating positive reflexive loops that create bubbles. So they literally could just step in to, to kind of crush that negative reflexivity, but then leave it at that instead of trying to, you know, move things uh, so much the other way. You know, you mentioned that, Phil, Tesla, I think, is a great example uh, of reflexivity on the long side today. Um, it also kind of goes to that idea that Buffett talked about in one of his annual meetings, the idea of uh, why he doesn't short, which is that companies like that can bootstrap a lot of value into the business because it is overvalued. You can issue stock at an over at a high price. Um, Tesla uh, specifically could merge potentially with a legacy automaker that's much cheaper on a valuation basis, also bootstrapping a business, a bootstrapping value into the business. So definitely a super fascinating topic. Uh, Elliot, thanks for bringing it uh, to discussion. Uh, great examples from you guys. That was awesome. I, you know, I, I, there's one thing I want to add on Tesla because I think you're so right. Like if you're short Tesla because it's overvalued because you think it will run out of money, you're missing something crucial there, which is the very status of being overvalued in that sense means they will not run out of money because the market's literally giving them the currency to not run out of money. Um, so, you know, I think that was like one of the tautological uh, underpinnings of the entire short thesis. Like, okay, you know, this thing's over so grossly overvalued and they're going to run out of money. Well, you know, those... Those two things kind of contradict one another, um, and the reflexivity is is very re real. And John, it was interesting to hear you mention, uh, you know, M and A, uh, the the roll up industry business as a reflexive one in nature um, that fails when you can't take over bigger and bigger companies. And how it got it, it was like Valiant. When did Valiant tip over? Valiant tipped over when they tried to take over Allergen and failed. They were going for their biggest, uh, you know tuck-in yet, or bigger than tuck-in. Um, and, and sure enough, when it, when it didn't work, people realized that, God, there's not much under underpinning this entire thing. Um, so yeah, great examples, guys. Really, really good stuff. Yeah, one thing that jumped out to me too, John, was the concept you mentioned about the Fed stepping in to counteract reflexivity to the downside. And I agree, I'd never actually thought about it quite that explicitly, but you're right. I mean, that's exactly what they're trying to do. And I don't, frankly, I think it makes sense. I'm not one of these Fed watchers that sits around all day bemoaning the counterfactual of what would happen if, what would have happened if we had no central bank or if we had never had any Fed intervention um, at a policy level, you know, or to quote prop up markets or whatever. I, I mean, I, that to me has never seemed productive. And frankly, I mean, I just don't philosophically have a problem with the economic framework wherein you do have a buyer or lender of last resort at that level. I mean, that's what the FDIC has done to great effect for almost 100 years. And I don't think anyone would argue that the banking industry, despite all the problems that have occurred you know, since the Great Depression, is in worse shape because of deposit insurance. And so, uh, look, I obviously it can get taken too far. And I think that's where you know, the Fed haters would come in and start arguing is that it's unnatural to create a put underneath every asset price, et cetera, et cetera. 
And that's fine. I, I agree with all that, but I think that's taking it a, a step too far. And I think it kind of misses the point of, well, what would you suggest we do otherwise when things like pandemics hit or, you know, economic shocks of all kind? I mean, I, I don't think I, I'm all for individual responsibility. I'm all for letting things fail when they need to fail. Um, but I think you know there's some important nuance that gets lost in that debate. I don't think bailouts across the board are an answer or a solution, but it's this inability to hold two competing ideas in your head at once, which I think really kind of does a disservice to a lot of people. And so if you frame it more simply, and I think correctly, which is that you know one job a central banker has is to step in and break up extreme negative reflexivity, I think that's valid and correct and, and worth doing. I, on the flip side, I will uh, slightly push back on your concept about short, activist short sellers or short sellers, um, because we probably all remember in the financial crisis when you were actually prohibited from short selling financial institutions for a while there. And look, I get it. I, I'm, I, I wholeheartedly endorse the most important part of what you said, which is the, just that you should never be able to say things that are untrue or even things that you can't prove to be true in a good faith basis and try to create a run on the bank, so to speak. Um, and so I think that just gets to the point of, you know, you should not be allowed to, you know, slander and libel laws exist for a reason. And so you should not be able to go out and defame someone or say something that's false about a, a company, an institution, an executive, whatever, period, full stop. Um, I just don't see it, though, as a black and white issue of, you know, uh, businesses that require confidence to exist because all businesses require confidence to exist, right? I mean, you can, if you had the trade pull on a retailer overnight, it, it wouldn't be a whole lot different than your depositors leaving. So I just don't know where to draw that line between businesses that require confidence and, and businesses that don't. And so I would rather just draw the line of, look, I don't want CEOs or bullish investors spewing lies to try to to try to drive the stock up. I think any dishonest information like that should be prosecuted and I think any dishonest information to the downside should be prosecuted in a negative sense. And I and frankly I just don't see very much of it. I mean sure there are some shady short sellers out there that are trying to cause a, you know, quick 10, 20, 40% hit to the stock so that they can profit and leave and they use some very unscrupulous means to do it. But my guess would be that they're outnumbered by a hundred to one or a thousand to one by guys doing the exact same thing on the long side. And, you know, to the other end, I, I think there are plenty of active short sellers or, or short sellers in general that have done a huge uh, net good for the, for the markets and for the world by, by acting as they have. Again, I mean, it just all comes down to representing truth and, and being accurate and not just spreading lies to profit from them. Yeah, I think, um, you know, it's like I agree with both of you guys. Um, I think, you know, on the Fed, I, I have almost gotten tired of speaking about the Fed with people because I just kind of <laughs> internalized my perspective. And yeah, their role as lender of last resort is to be a circuit breaker, which literally means stopping a positive feedback loop that's moving in the wrong direction, right? So um, I, I think that's really important. And, you know, I think uh, that's exactly what they're there for. And to get back to the counterfactual, a lot of people were like, I don't like that the Fed stepped in. Well, you know, good luck thinking about what the world would have looked like had they not. Um, I think we have some clues from before uh, the Fed age uh, of what that 
looked like. Um, and things were a little more chaotic back then. Um, granted, life has gotten better in general too. So there, there is that. Um, as for the short sellers, one of the things that I, I, I don't like is that there is this, um, it's a lot easier to create a positive feedback loop in the wrong direction when confidence is involved. And I think this is true whether or not uh, it's, it's a bank or something important. It really, what it takes is stretched positioning because, you know, like Soros invokes, uh, positive feedback loops go from one direction to the other. So, you know, when a positive feedback loop is moving uh, stock upward and you find a fissure and you could crack that uh, vulnerability, I think that's one of the things that Citron's done uh, incredibly effectively. It's not that their analysis is good at all. I'd, I'd say actually it's borderline uh, atrocious, um, but they recognize where they're stretched positioning and come into those with, you know, a big headline and are able to create a feedback loop in the other, other direction that until, a, you know, either a company like doesn't speak directly to them and, and speaks up and points out the facts of their business or, you know, someone else is willing to step in, um, you know, it's hard to stop them. But I also think, yeah, there's an important role to be played by people that are approaching it in the right direction. And, you know, those the, the, those bad actors are far fewer than, than the good actors on, on the short side. Um, but, you know, a lot of it comes down to the incentives and the structure for how it's created. There are some perverse incentives in that world because, you know, certain people have a reputation that is so mighty they could send a stock down. Um, and I think there's a recent article in Institutional Investor Digest. I, I could be wrong on exactly where it was about how there's some funds that'll pay some of these people with those reputations and plant them with the idea. Um, and, you know, I think that's where things get a little hairy and, and, and definitely a bit untoward. But, um, you know, overall, yeah, reflexivity is so prevalent in markets that there are, you know, many different ways to kind of identify and exploit it. Um, you know, I think, John, you kind of referenced that there are some people that, you know, push some of these uh, positive feedback loops thinking, you know, like, let's just keep going until it stops. But I think it's, you know, in most cases where it really goes far, it's far more subconscious than that. Like people are so entrenched in what they're doing and they're one little piece of the action. And they're like, I just, you know, my goal is constantly to move forward. There's no incentive to kind of change that. And so, you know, that's, that's where things get a bit messy. Um, but I don't know. In general, reflexivity just fascinates me. And I think you, it's one of those tools where you have to be careful because you could like look at anything and be like, oh, that's reflexivity. That's reflexivity. But, you know, when you really see it, it like hits, smacks you in the face and it's like so freaking obvious. And it's really powerful. Great. Well, guys, this was a fascinating discussion. Uh, thanks so much to both of you. And thanks to everybody listening. Till next time. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.